This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He was seated behind his desk in a wood-paneled room in the heart of the Kremlin, flanked by the white, blue, and red tricolor of the Russian flag and the gold insignia of the presidential standard. Vladimir Putin looked straight at the camera. Citizens of Russia, friends, the president said, my address concerns the events in Ukraine. It was February 21st of this year. Russia had been building up troops at the Ukrainian border for months, and Putin used the broadcast to recognize the independence of two breakaway regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. But he also wanted to give Russia a history lesson. Ukraine, he claimed, was entirely created by the Bolsheviks. In his eyes, this was a great mistake. This historically Russian land, as he called it, was severed, without asking the millions of people living there what they thought. Now, this version of history doesn't stand up to much fact-checking, but it's the story Putin wanted to tell, to justify what he was about to do. Three days later, he was back behind his desk making another televised address. This time, he was announcing a special military operation. He expected a short conflict, with little resistance from Ukraine. But six months on, the two sides are stuck in a stalemate. This is The Economist Asks. I'm John Fassman, in for Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can Russia's history explain the Ukraine crisis? My guest is the historian and best-selling author Orlando Figes. He spent his life studying Russian and European history. In his latest book, The Story of Russia, he dissects the myths and ideologies that have shaped the country and considers how that past can help us understand where Putin's Russia is headed. Orlando Figes, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by going back to six months ago when the invasion of Ukraine began. I wonder if you can remember your reaction then, especially given your understanding of Russia's history and of Putin himself and of how he got to that point. Were you surprised that he actually invaded or did you think it was inevitable? No, I was shocked, disgusted, dismayed. It took a while to come to terms with what had happened, really. Although, I guess for some years, the tensions with NATO had been building and the rhetoric coming from the Kremlin had suggested that there was a conflict brewing. But never did I think that he would launch a full-scale invasion in the way he did. I thought it much more likely that he would carry out maybe another incursion into eastern Ukraine and then use that pressure for diplomacy, I suppose. That is much more in the pattern of Russian 
practice. It struck me as a sort of very reckless gamble um, to launch a full-scale invasion at that point. I'm going to get back to the conflict in Ukraine and the question of NATO expansion later in the interview, but I want to set it up by understanding how Russia's history made it what it is today. And this, of course, is the subject of your terrific new book, The Story of Russia. Can you briefly give a sort of potted version of the story of Russia's history that Vladimir Putin tells and explain how it differs from how we in the West understand Russia's history? Yes, very much so. And that's actually the inspiration for writing the story of Russia that I felt since 2014, a growing disconnect between the way the West understands Russian history and the way the Russians have been encouraged to understand it, particularly those parts that interface with the West, like the Cold War, for example. The key to this probably is the essay written by Putin in July 2021 on the relations between Russians and Ukrainians, in which essentially he argues that Russia and Ukraine are the same nation, they are the same people, that whenever the little Russians, as the Ukrainians are called in this imperial discourse, try to break away from their great Russian big brothers, they fall into the hands of hostile Western powers trying to turn Ukrainian nationalism into an anti-Russia, into a sort of Trojan horse that Western powers have used to undermine Russia. And the other thing in that essay, which is so different from the way we would see Ukrainian history, I think, is to argue that Ukraine never had any statehood that was worthy of the name. So that the only real episode of Ukrainian statehood he talks about in that essay is effectively as a Ukrainian Soviet Republic from 1922 to 1991, in which he argues that essentially the Ukrainians got too much land. They were given the coastal area of southern Ukraine that had previously been part of the Russian Empire and the Donbass. And that's not even to mention the Crimea, which had been ceded to Ukraine by Khrushchev in 1954. So in that sense, it's an irredentist nationalism that he was arguing for, that Ukraine effectively had been given too much land and some of it should be returned to the Soviet Union's successor state, the Russian Federation, after Ukraine ceded from the Union of Soviet Republics as it was to be in 1991. Those two arguments are sort of rooted in a mythic understanding of Russia as this imperial state whose origins go back to the foundation of Kievan Rus in the first millennium and whose right of succession follows from the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union at the expense of Ukrainian nationhood founded obviously from our point of view, with the independence of Ukraine from 1991. Well, that independence isn't really recognized by Putin or his regime. So that's the the sort of declaration of war or historical justification for the war, which Putin unfolds in his essay. But I think it's related to a broader disconnect between the way the Russians understand their imperial history and the way that we in the West would understand their history. And that is essentially that Ukraine as a sort of Trojan horse for Western threats to Russia 
fits into a pattern of Russian history for Putin and his ideologists, namely that Russia has always been attacked by the West. It has these porous, vulnerable frontiers, and that Russia has to unite behind a strong state, a strong leader, in order to conquer borderlands, which is how Ukraine was originally conceived in this imperial discourse from the 17th century, Ukraine meaning merely a borderland in Russian, Ukraina. So this is the fear of encirclement, fear of the dismantlement of the Russian Empire, of the undermining of the Russian Empire, which Russia's nationalist ideology has developed on the back of Russia's imperial historiography going back to the 19th century, I guess. So do you think that story that Russia requires a strong leader to conquer borderlands leaves Russia and Russians especially amenable to strongman rule? It's the historical justification for strongman rule. Putin argued in his very first major essay on coming to power in 1999 that the Russians were strong when they were united behind a strong leader. They did not see a powerful state as in contradiction with the universal principles of liberty, democracy, that they had gained as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union. He rejected communism. He thought that Bolshevism was a disaster for Russia and that the collapse of the Soviet Union, although a great tragedy for Russia, no one would, he said, argue in their right mind that we should reconstruct the Soviet Union. But what was good about the Soviet Union was that it united this multi-ethnic community of peoples dominated by the Russians behind a strong state, and that that was when Russia was at its strongest. Russia was weak when it was divided, a division usually brought about by liberals influenced by the West, so he would include the liberals of 1917 in that category, or he would include Yeltsin and Gorbachev in that category. And when it was divided, it was torn apart by the influence of Western ideologies, which were individualistic, which were materialistic, and which were in full conflict with Russia's traditional principles, which should lie at the heart of this imperial vision of Russia under a strong state leadership. I want to go back to the 1990s. Was that a missed opportunity somehow for the West? Or do you think that Putin, or at least the sort of Putinist rule that we see today, was inevitable from the moment the Soviet Union collapsed. I'm just wondering if the West could have done something more to bring Russia closer, to liberalize it more, to forestall this sort of conflict we're seeing now. Oh, undoubtedly. If there hadn't been this sort of shock therapy privatization in the early 1990s, in which millions of former Soviet citizens lost their savings. They had no idea what these shares were meant to be. They lost so much in that, that democracy became synonymous with, if I may say so, shitocracy is what they called it in the 1990s, because democratia uh, was this sort of corruption of the term democratia. On top of that, then Putin he has a, a very clear path to arguing for an anti-Western nationalism because those that had lost out from the collapse of the Soviet Union 
could easily be mobilized by an anti-Western form of nationalism that argued for a stronger state, for greater securities, for the ordinary people. So undoubtedly, the shock therapy undermined the ability of democracy to stabilize itself. Undoubtedly, too, NATO expansion played into the Putinite ideology that the West was effectively a threat. If there had been a different approach to Russia, which perhaps hadn't cast it as the enemy, which it saw itself as being cast. So in Putin's rhetoric from the beginning of his his regime, it seemed that Putin was portraying NATO as an anti-Russian alliance. And I think this exclusion of Russia from the building up of Central Europe in the 1990s, this idea that Russia was beyond the pale, that it should be excluded from Western institutions, even when Putin, uh, we're led to believe, asked Clinton in 2002 to three whether Russia would ever be allowed to join NATO and got a, a short no. All of this only fed this sense of resentment against the West, this sense that, that they were treated as inferiors, which Putin was able to develop in the guise of restoring pride, patriotism. So do you think NATO's eastward expansion was a mistake? And a counterfactual, had NATO not expanded eastward, do you think that today the Baltics would be fully independent countries and that the Eastern Bloc countries would be free of Russian political domination? I think that NATO expansion as it was carried out without consultation with Russia was a provocation. In that, I agree with George Kennan, who said exactly that in 1997. And Kennan, let's not forget, was the architect of the American Cold War policy of containment. But although it was a provocation, I don't think it can be seen as to blame for Russian aggression since 2008 when they went to war against Georgia, let alone since 2014 when the invasion of Ukraine began. That has to be seen in this imperial ideology that Putin has developed. Let me ask one last question about Russia before moving on. There seem to be two ideas that are slightly in tension here. One is that Russia has sort of always been prone to strongman rule because it needs a strong leader to conquer its borderlands. And second is that Putin is reacting to how NATO expanded. And so I am thinking back on my own time in Russia in the early 2000s when it felt like a period of tremendous possibility that Russia was becoming more free, more open, more democratic. Was that foolish? Was it foolish to think that Russia was going to follow a more democratic path and not revert to being a sort of repressive, centralized, strongman state? No, I think there were those possibilities, which is coming back to your previous question, isn't it? I mean, undoubtedly, there were major democratic gains in the 1990s. So it's not as if the Russian people were not able to be guided towards a more open, free, pluralist and democratic society. But that imperial ideology that Putin tapped into after 2000 was always latent in the Russian people because that's how they have been taught to see their history, not just during the Soviet period, but before that in the imperial period. So the historical memory of the Russians lent itself to this strong state, strong leader. 
leader discourse, the idea that Russia was really an imperial entity and should inherit the imperial mantle of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, that it had a right to influence, if not domination, over the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, the Kazakhs, and so on. So that was a latent imperial consciousness in the Russian people, which could have gone another way with the right encouragement, the right government, but which, because of the mistakes of the West, perhaps to some extent, but the weakness of Russian society, more importantly, in the 1990s and 2000s, failed to develop an alternative ideology, which would situate Russia as a nation state at peace with its neighbors. I mean, Yeltsin tried. He attempted to create some new conception of the Russian Federation as a civic nation with lots of national minorities, but which would no longer be this imperial entity that it had been for so long. And the attempt of this Yeltsin project to define Russia by some unifying concept just didn't work. So when he was replaced by Putin, it was very, very easy for that vacuum of ideology to be filled by what I call the debris of Russian history, namely everything from sort of Eurasianism, Slavophilism, Russian nationalism, Russian imperialism, elements of the Soviet discourse, to create a sort of hybrid or mongrel nationalism that defined itself by resentment and hostility towards the West. Could Russia ever have been really a nation state? You mentioned Yeltsin's attempt to turn it into one. And I understand that from his perspective, but would I accept that? Would you accept that if you were Kalmyk, Tuvan, Dagestani, Chechen? I think it's possible to have a nation state based on the notion of civic nationhood, that everyone has equal rights regardless of ethnicity. But you're right to point out the tension here because In every attempt through Russian history to redefine Russia as a nation state, you've always had this problem of, well, where do the Russians fit in? Is it a hierarchy? Is it Russian domination? That same tension is there between Lenin wanting a a looser federation that would allow for republics to secede and which would allow for autonomous cultural rights for the Kalmyks, for the Kazakhs, for the Ukrainians and so on. And Stalin, a much more centralist architect of the Soviet project, who wanted all of these autonomous areas to be essentially part of the Russian Federation. And Putin clearly sides with Stalin on this, because in that historical essay I mentioned before, he believes that Lenin made a great mistake in allowing the republics to secede. His argument was that they should have been locked into a union with Russia, so that the catastrophe, as he put it, of 1991 would never have happened. In other words, his conception of Russia as a nation is entirely imperial again. Related to that is the Eurasianist theory of history that you mentioned in your book, which argues, in essence, that Russian culture stems from the intermingling of European, Mongolian, Byzantine influences, and as such has a unique imperial destiny that lies in both continents, but of neither. To what extent do you think that theory is essentially a retrofitted or advanced justification for conquests? And to what extent do people in power genuinely believe it? I think the Eurasianist idea has surfaced in Russian 
statecraft and ideology at those moments when Russia has felt itself most rejected by the West. So originally it was a philosophy developed by emigre philosophers in the 1920s whose Eurasianist ideas were built on an idea of betrayal by the West. They felt that the West had abandoned them to the Bolsheviks. So in emigration, they developed this idea, well, if we can't be part of the West, if the West won't save us, we will have to reconstruct an empire in Eurasia in which we are the dominant power because we are the most European of the Asian civilizations. We are the true bearers of orthodoxy. That was a part of Slavophile philosophy in the 19th century from people like Danilevsky, who I believe is a big influence on Putin's anti-Western nationalism, his Eurasianism. Because what Danilevsky and the Slavophiles did, and then it became a part of Eurasianist thinking, was that Russia should no longer measure itself by the West. The West was hostile to Russia. Russia should measure itself by its own principles. And this is where the Eurasianists became so influential, particularly on those thinkers like Alexander Dugin in the 1990s and 2000s, who was to proselytize and popularize Eurasianist ideas in Russia and to have a big influence on Kremlin ideologists in the build-up to this war. Because what people like Dugin and the Eurasianists were arguing is that Russia should no longer heed any Western principles. It should take confidence from its own ideology. And that meant that authoritarianism, it meant that the idea of empire to advance the interests of Russia's Christianity should be pursued in the most aggressive manner possible, regardless of universal principles established by the West, which are in fact no more in their view than double standards. They are no more than the pretext used by the West to establish the hegemony of Western liberalism. So these ideas are more than a post facto justification for empire and aggression. They are at the root of an imperial ideology which is, I'm afraid, here to stay in Russia and which justifies a swiveling of Russia away now from Europe towards the east. At the moment, the brunt of this ideology is being borne by Ukraine and Ukrainians. I wonder if we can talk about Ukraine for a moment. What role do you think this war, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, will play in shaping Ukraine's understanding of itself, its future versions of history and myth that it tells itself? Well, the irony here is that Putin went to war on the historical justification that Ukraine is not a nation, does not have the basis of nationhood or statehood within it. And yet by attacking it, he's made it much more united as a nation than it ever was. It's certainly true that after 1991, there were massive divisions within Ukraine. It is a complex multi-ethnic society. But Boy, has it come together as a result of this full-scale invasion in the last six months. So I think that Ukraine will, whatever happens to it in the war, will remain an entity crystallized by the war in a way that Putin and his ideologists had not 
envisage when they launch the invasion. One thing that I think has surprised and horrified the world about Putin's invasion of Ukraine is its sheer indiscriminate brutality. Should we have been surprised or should we have expected it? And what do you think explains the destruction that Russia is inflicting on Ukrainian civilians? I think, firstly, we have to see the Russian way of fighting as a long tradition going back, I would argue, to Peter the Great when essentially the Russians substituted quantity for quality. And that meant that the state developed a way of fighting that depended on cannon fodder and had no scruples about fighting in whatever way needed to attain that victory. So, you know, if you think of Stalin and his orders to Zhukov in the last phases of the war, I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives were needlessly expended just so that the Soviets could get to Berlin before the Western allies. And that method of fighting, deep reserves but little training of the people thrown into the fighting, not enough logistical support, not enough medical support, all of that we've seen in this war. And I think that the violence that we've seen meted out by Russian soldiers against Ukrainian soldiers and civilians is part of that tradition. It's also, I think, an extension of this imperial ideology we've been thinking about. I mean, I don't subscribe to the view that the Russians are carrying out a genocide in Ukraine. I think that the rhetoric of this war is genocidal insofar as Putin is talking about the erasure of Ukraine from the geopolitical map. But I think that what's happening on the ground, these terrible atrocities we've seen in Mariupol and other places, these are more a sort of post-imperial phenomenon. It's a question of the Russian soldiers who have been taught to look down on the Ukrainians as traitors, as fascists, as neo-Nazis, and whose history books have told them that the Ukrainians are inferior to the Russians. It's these Russian soldiers punishing the Ukrainians for daring to break away from the Soviet Union as they did in 1991. It's punishment of the Ukrainians for their audacity in wanting to be a free nation, for having a lifestyle better than the Russians have at home, for being more Western-oriented in a way that perhaps the Russians would like to be but have never managed to be. So all of this resentment against the West is, if you like, focused on the Ukraine Ukrainians in an emblem of revenge, in a, in a bitterness that wants to punish them. So that has led to these atrocities, this terrible violence of the war, this bombing of uh, whole cities callously carried out without regard to human life, to people being killed, all of which has its roots in the Russian tradition of warfare, but which I think must be seen in the context of this imperial wrath that we're seeing unleashed in this war. So what does that mean for how the war can end? I'm thinking of the last chapter of your book that is actually called Ends. You write of three possible scenarios, Russian defeat, Russian victory, or permanent stalemate. Setting aside Russian victory for the moment, do you think that Russian history, or at least the version of Russia's history that it's telling itself now, will allow it to accept defeat or stalemate, anything other than total conquest of Ukraine? The way the Russian regime presents Russian history and the 
legacy that Putin wants to establish for himself as the follower of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, these great conquering Tsars, will not allow the regime to accept anything than victory. But what that victory means is yet to be decided. It can call an end to the war at any point from now and call it a victory because it has 20% of Ukraine's lands in the 1991 borders. So let me ask one last question. There are unconfirmed, unverifiable reports that Vladimir Putin is ill, and even if he isn't, he won't be around forever. What happens when he is not the leader anymore? Do you think there is some hope for a reflowering of Russian democracy, or do you expect another strongman to follow him? I think if Putin were to fall under a metaphorical bus today, he'd be replaced by a dictator or collective leadership whose ideology and policies are likely to be very similar. I don't think that the regime has much alternative because it's so steeped in its own policies and in its own lies, which cannot be simply reversed. So it's committed to the policy it has developed for Russia, which is, I think, catastrophic for Russia economically and offers very little hope for a more democratic form of government to emerge at any time in my lifetime. We have to give up any wishful thinking about Russia changing in a way that makes it more acceptable to our universal principles or amenable to negotiation or reliable as a partner in anything, whether that's diplomatic relations or in any economic relations. I don't think Russia now can be trusted or relied upon in any way. So it will be isolated. So that means that we have to accept now that Russia is going to be part of a Eurasian bloc with China at its head, hostile to the West, in conflict with the West financially, economically, diplomatically, in terms of geopolitics. So that means that we also have to shape policies for those Russians opposed to this regime. There are millions of Russians who have fled Russia since this regime came into power. And then, of course, we have to think about our policy to those in Russia who are now languishing in jail or silenced by the fear of being imprisoned. So all of these will require a much more nuanced understanding of Russia and a more calibrated policy to help Russia and Russians develop a polity, develop institutions, which may be ready to move back to Russia at a time when it is open to a more democratic form of government. I fear at this point it won't be until Russia suffers a military defeat, because I don't think that a Russian revolution, which is the only other means of regime change, is 
very likely. The Russians have a long history of revolutions, and they've grown very tired of revolution. And so we need to form policies which will enable those Russians to, if not create their own revolution to topple this regime, then at least to return to Russia at some point in their lifetimes to form a political class that can then steer Russia after some military defeat towards a more democratic society. Orlando Fijas, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you very much for having me. And do let us know what you think. To what extent can any country's history explain its present? Write to us at podcastandeconomist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. After the outbreak of the war, the West united to impose sanctions on Vladimir Putin's regime. But six months later, the Russian economy is proving surprisingly resilient. This week, The Economist investigates the true state of Russia's finances. You can read that on our website, and you can listen to our sister podcast, Money Talks, too. This week, the team explores whether the West is losing the sanctions war. Find that episode wherever you get your podcasts. And for access to all of our journalism, become a subscriber. We offer a special introductory deal just for our podcast listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers are Alicia Burrell and Harriet Noble. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm John Fastman, And in New York... This is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.